I'm Lean Printer, and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello, bonjour, bienvenidos, and of course, falcha osquelga in Irish to The Motivated Classroom podcast. Thank you for joining me today on episode 80. Can you believe that? Those people who've been here since the beginning. Episode 80. I never, ever thought it would get here. So a huge, massive thank you. Guramila Mahagov. Merci beaucoup. Muchas gracias. Tashekular to those who are in Turkey. A massive thank you, basically, to all of you for listening, for downloading. And a special word of thanks to all of you who, over the past couple of years, have gone on my Buy Me A Coffee website or on Patreon and decided to support the podcast with a coffee or a bag of crisps to keep me going and genuinely that has really helped the fact that so many people out there are listening and the emails that you send and the kind words but those coffees particularly right now are very very helpful and really it is thanks to you that we're still here after 80 episodes so a huge huge thank you to all of those patrons in particular. Now of course if you're not in a position to support the podcast through the buy me a coffee or the patron that's fine no problem it's absolutely grand as we say in Ireland that's all good just keep sharing it that is the goal of this podcast to get out there to as many language teachers as we can to kind of start to think about our practice and maybe get some new ideas so just keep sharing with people that's that's all I ask now of course this is the motivated classroom podcast we must of course begin with some of our Irish and today that phrase is a phrase I heard over and over again in school and often in my house as well and that was the phrase doon on duris which means close the door so you'll hear that a lot in Ireland even if you walk into a restaurant or a pub on a cold day you might hear one of the locals say hey doon on duris which means close the door. Now, I wanted to use today's episode to really talk a little bit more about comprehensible input teaching or CI or teaching with a CI focus. And in particular, around the obstacles and maybe the resistance that may lie with some teachers about becoming what we would call a CI teacher. Now, first of all, I guess we need to know is what is a CI teacher? What do we mean by that? You'll often hear people on social media say, I'm a CI teacher or I want to work in a school where they have a CI department. First of all, the thing to say is I personally don't consider myself in inverted commas a CI teacher. I don't like to put that label on myself as as limiting factor, to be honest. I prefer to say I am a teacher of language acquisition who tries to provide compelling, comprehensible inputs to my students as often as I can. Now, yes, that is not as catchy. It does not roll off the tongue as easily as I'm a CI teacher. But that is the way I would consider myself because actually I don't like to put myself in those camps and I I think it's really important to be open to all different ways of doing things. However, I guess I would consider myself more of a CI-focused teacher or a CI-approaches teacher, mainly because I don't use a textbook and I use lots of reading materials, lots of graded readers in my class. And to me, that would kind of sum up somebody who teaches with much more of a CI focus than someone who teaches in a more traditional focus around grammar translation, fill the gap exercises, lists of vocabulary and the mechanics of the language first and the communication later. So I I think that's kind of how to differentiate it a little bit. Now, if you're listening to this and you're going, well, I would really like to become more of a CI teacher, but I don't know where to start. I don't know how to get going with it. I, I'm not really sure how to go about this. And, I'm, and I get these emails from people who say, oh, I'm trying to make all these changes and do this, but it's really difficult. You know, I've got this textbook and I'm in this department. First of all, the big thing is just start slowly. Don't try and change everything at once. There are many, many fantastic, brilliant, wonderful teachers out there who are teaching with what you might consider a much more traditional 
approach where they teach through lots of grammar and accuracy, lots of vocabulary lists, and they do a wonderful job. They connect with their kids in a really meaningful way. They help their kids to see progress. However, I guess I would fall into the camp that says even those teachers who are doing a brilliant job of explaining the grammar really clearly and breaking it down and doing the grammar tables and lots of exercises around accuracy, even if they're doing an absolutely fantastic job, which many of them are, it's highly unlikely we're going to reach every learner because the vast majority of learners, teenagers and young children are just not interested in the mechanics of the language. Yes, we might help them to understand the grammar and know where things go in sentence order and they may know, being able to call the different words of the grammar and what it is, the mechanics there, but are they really going to be able to be confident, fluent, proficient speakers and communicators, which is really where I feel it's much more important to put our emphasis It's just the reality we see over and over again from the research, from all the statistics, from the studies over and over again, that students are not leaving as proficient communicators. And it's only a tiny percentage of them that are going on to study it at a higher level. And they are learning loads about the mechanics of the language and getting really proficient at that, but not at the communication piece. So even if you're a brilliant teacher and you're doing all of that stuff right, it's highly unlikely you're going to reach all learners. Really, you're only reaching two or three percent of them who are like me and you. Personally, for me, I would much, much prefer that they are confident, fluent, proficient speakers and writers of the language who are willing to go out there and try and make connections and communicate with those from other cultures and who know about the culture and the backgrounds rather than getting 100% on a grammar test like the Passé Composé, knowing where every single letter goes and every accent. I mean, I make mistakes in English and I've completed a doctorate. I know people who have completed two or three masters who make mistakes in English as their native language, who put the wrong verb here or there, they use the wrong pronoun or, you know, are we saying that then they're not as good at English as someone else? You know, I think the communication aspect for me is the much more important. So so I guess that's where I would lie in that argument. Now, that's not to say there's no role for grammar and accuracy. Of course there is, but it can come much, much later at a much higher level. The other thing that's really important to state is that even if you're listening to this and you're saying, oh, I think I'm quite a traditional teacher. I still use the fill the gap exercises. I am trying to change things a little bit. That's wonderful that you're open to some change. Now, some of you will say, no, but I, I do teach in that way and, and I am reaching my kids and I'm sure you are. I'm sure you're a wonderful teacher and I'm sure you're making great connections and you're being great relationships, all of those things. However, the data shows us quite strongly the way we've always done things around teaching of languages, focusing very much on accuracy, very, very much on grammar focus. It just doesn't work in terms of getting to a level where students are proficient, confident speakers and where most of them are loving the language and want to keep going and learning with it. Now, we see this report after report after report after study after study that students are continually dropping languages in their droves and many of them cite boring demotivation. They can't do it. They feel lost with all the grammar exercises. They're not communicating all of these things. So I guess I'm trying to get you to just think about the more we can provide opportunities with more compelling, comprehensible inputs to them, the more chance we have of of those connections happening, the more chance we have of them feeling a little bit interested in what's going on and that they are learning and acquiring the language naturally, implicitly through listening and reading. And then we can focus on the accuracy. I was working recently with some teachers of Chinese and they were wondering about when they should bring in characters as opposed to reading in pinyin, like the phonetical spelling of the words in Chinese. And I was asking, well, when did you get exposed to characters? And they said, well, 
almost immediately when we went to school and they said but that was because we had listened and read and heard the language Chinese at home so many times that when we saw the characters we could link them to the sounds and that's exactly it you need to build up that system I've said this over and over again as as Dr Florentia Henshaw says as Dr Will Van Tatten says as Dr Stephen Cratchen says as many many people say as Dr Gianfranco Conti said last week in his episode We need loads of compelling, interesting inputs to build the system, build up that knowledge and awareness of the sounds, what it looks like, what it sounds like, all of this stuff. Then we can really start to look at the intricate differences between why this verb goes here and why this is with this agreement and why this letter goes here and why we have this adjective over here, etc. But trying to go with that part first, learning about the mechanics of it and all of the placement of the words before we've heard it lots and lots and lots of times and seen it written down is really difficult and almost impossible to make meaning out of and make it understandable. So a good analogy for this is if you think about learning to drive. So if you're learning to drive, your goal is to drive, to move around fluently, safely, through wherever you're going without hurting someone, without damaging your car, making sure that you're safe and getting from one place to another. And you may make mistakes on the way. You may, you know, stall the engine, go into the wrong gear or, you know, put on your windscreen wipers when you should have put on your indicators. Like we've all been there. But if we started off our driving lessons with weeks and weeks and weeks, if not months of learning about every single part of the engine and how one screw goes into this and then that screw leads to this. And this is placed over here because the oil must come through here and do this. You'd be so bored so quickly. And then they suddenly say to you, "Okay, now I want you to sit your driving test. And you're like, well, I haven't really done much driving. I only drove that one or two days in the car park. And then they're saying, no, no, but I taught you over and over again about how the engine works and how it all comes together and how one gear leads to another and and how you push this in here and then this will result in this. Of course, you're not going to be able to do it because you haven't seen someone drive a car or been in it or tried it out yourself enough times. So really think about that. What's the point in having all of the mechanics and knowing how everything works together if we've never seen or tried or heard it enough times? And that's the really key point. Now, I'm straying off topic a bit and talking much more about CI in general here, but I feel it's important to get that underpinning of the theory around what is comprehensible input. And when we, when I talk about CI teaching, what I'm talking about is flooding students with lots of interesting, compelling inputs so that they can build the system. And then once the system is built, develop their proficiency and fluency and confidence through meaningful output and things that they really want to communicate and say. But in today's episode, I want to focus on, well, if that is all so great and it works so well, why is there still this reluctance and resistance among many teachers to use what I would call a CI approach to teaching of languages? Now, I'm not talking about CI commercial materials, that you have to use these commercial materials in order to be a CI teacher. Absolutely not. I'm going to speak a little bit more about that next week. I'm talking about the theory, the language acquisition theory of providing lots of inputs. And why is there resistance or why is there still some barriers? What are those barriers and obstacles to teachers that really want to try and teach in this way. Those teachers who have contacted me, many of them, to say, I really want to teach in this more CI approach. It sounds wonderful. Connecting with my kids, helping them all to understand, helping them all to move forward. But I don't really know where to start or I'm not sure I can or I've tried it and it doesn't work and now I'm back to doing things my old way. So there are obstacles and I think the first thing is knowing about these obstacles and the resistance to teaching with this CI focus. And I talked to Dr. Krashen about this. So this is a lead into this. I talked to him about why 
after 40 years of research in this way, why why is there not more widely spread view of teaching in this way without textbooks done by units and, and vocab lists? Things we know from the research don't work. They don't help us to be proficient speakers, yet they are really dominant in the language acquisition classroom. Why is it? And and he, he talks about that, but I don't want to give away too much. So I want to firstly talk about what I think are some of the big obstacles and resistance to teaching with a more CI focus, not to becoming a CI teacher, because I just I don't really like those labels, but teaching with more of a focus and comprehensible inputs rather than accuracy from the beginning. And I think once we know about these obstacles and resistance, we can then start to unpack some of them one by one to help us to be a more compelling and motivating teacher to have that motivated classroom. So the first of these obstacles, I think, is our deeply held beliefs and the way that we were taught languages. Now, the people listening to this, most of you are language teachers. So you are already in that two to three percent of kids who sat in a French or German or Italian or Chinese or Japanese or Dutch class, whatever it was, and you thought it was really cool and you loved the way the grammar worked together and you did really well. You figured out the grammar, you got the patterns, you could fill in that worksheet really well. You, you did well, you figured it all out, you knew what was going on. You Even by the end, you felt like quite comfortable to speak it a little bit. You, you could put all this grammar together and write a coherent text we are the minority. We really are the minority. There, there was just a few of us. That's why there's not millions of language teachers out there. There's just a few of us. And it's why we don't have more proficient speakers leaving the system, because we were taught, no, most of us, in a way that focused heavily on being very accurate in everything you write and say and constantly thinking about the grammar and what comes next. And I see this over and over again on Twitter, language teachers getting into very respectful, polite debates about is this a relative clause or a subordinate clause? And should the pronoun go here or there? And no, that can't be right because this is a relative clause. You know, people, we're unusual in that sense. So we have deeply held beliefs that we think it worked for us. This is the way languages are taught. It worked really well for me. So this is the way I have to do it. Unfortunately, that or maybe fortunately, I don't know. That is just simply not true. That is just not the case. It worked for us, but we were the two or three percent. For the other 97 percent, or even if you're kind and you say 15 or 20 percent of them just kind of got by, even if you're talking 80 percent, it didn't work for them. They didn't like it. They weren't enthused by the grammar. They weren't able to speak it when they left school. They weren't able to communicate. They didn't feel confident communicating. And how many times have you met those people in your life? Those people who say, oh, I took French for seven years. I can't say a word of it. Oh, I did German for five years. Can't remember a word. Can't say a word. I was terrified to speak in class. Oh, I did Spanish for six years. All I can remember is, you know, lo siento, muchas gracias. You know, like we are failing big time if that is what people, 80% of people or 90% of people are saying when they leave the language classroom that they did it for five or six years but they can't really have a conversation outside of a memorised learned off by heart role play so those deeply held beliefs first of all we need to unpack those and go just because it worked for you and me does not make it the right way or the most efficient or best or evidence informed research approved way to do things secondly I think that we are resistant to relying and believing in the process of implicit language acquisition. Because 
it's quite blind to us. You can't really see it very carefully. It's very complex what goes on in the brain, what goes on behind someone's eyes when they are acquiring a language. We can't see it. It's it's very much akin to those parents who are very frustrated that the other two-year-old is speaking in full sentences, yet your two-year-old is not. And you're wondering what on earth is going on. Why isn't it not happening for my daughter or my son yet? But then all of a sudden they start flowing with big long sentences and speaking and they catch up and they it all levels out by the age of four or five. Because they were building the system in a different way. They were waiting and waiting until they were ready just now to say those things and get it out there. So relying on this implicit learning that we know from the research does work, is efficient. That is how we can acquire languages. We have to rely on that process and don't be scared of that process and think, oh, you know, just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. So believe in the process, it will happen. And I shared recently a blog about this, actually, and where students of mine in their second year of Spanish are frequently writing these journal entries called the reading diary entries. And people have asked me to do a full episode on this, so I will do it later. And basically, the stuff that they're writing is really impressive. And I'm not at all saying this is due to me. It's not. It's due to the process. It's due to the amount of reading that they're doing. They're doing so much reading in class and out of class that they have all these structures and phrases and vocab that I never taught them, but they can use it and and do it just implicitly. Of course, there's mistakes. Yes, there's mistakes. But they have the confidence to say and write these things from reading and listening. And At the beginning, you think it's not working. There's nothing happening. Why aren't they saying more? But give it time. Lots and lots of inputs. And that famous phrase that I keep keep saying from Grant Boulanger that I love, the less you force them to talk, the more they'll want to talk. So giving them the inputs and when they're ready, they'll give you the outputs. Now, thirdly, and I think this is a really important one, and this is something that Gianfranco Conti alluded to last week in his episode when he talked about extensive processing instruction and his system of lots of comprehensible inputs is that we are very married to and afraid of letting go of our textbook. It's organised, it has the chapters in a certain sequence, we can follow it, and that is difficult. It feels kind of scary to say, I'm not going to use a textbook, I'm going to use these graded readers. And yes, that does mean that you need to put in some work and some time to looking into these graded readers, to talking to other teachers who've used them, to, to reading them yourself and making sure that they are appropriate and that they work properly for your class. You know, even teachers and authors with the very best intentions at heart, sometimes some of these readers do create further stereotypes and uh, when they talk about kind of white saviorism and, and that can happen. Most of the graded readers that I have come across are wonderful and they try really, really hard to, to give us the right messages. But some of them have some unfortunate stereotypes in them and you need to read them and look at them and talk to your kids about them. And if, you know, you, you've missed it and suddenly you're reading one with your class and something comes out and, and maybe it's kind of a sexist comment or maybe it's a little bit of a stereotype about people from that country, then, yeah, that's a very great teaching moment. That is your moment to stop and say, hmm, this is an interesting sentence about girls and boys, right? What, what, what does this say to us, class? Oh, does it say that all boys like football and, and girls don't? And that, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Now, is that really the case? No, not really. So, yeah, you might come across these lines or these things in books and, and most books will have some kind of bias or perspective or something to them because they're written by a human being with their own experiences, no matter how hard we try. 
And yeah, you might have to step in there and, and you know, make sure that you, you use that as a teaching moment. So that's important. And OK, it does take time to build up your library of resources. As I said many times, I've been maxing out my budget for seven years in a row. I just did it again yesterday. Every single cent I have of my budget to spend on textbooks gets spent on readers, graded readers. And I'll often buy just one or two copies of the new ones that have come out and I'll read them. They're not expensive. They're only like six or seven euros. I'll buy them. And if I'm not really that keen on it, then I won't buy any more copies. But if I think, you know, oh, this one's really good for our library, then I'll order another two or three copies. So I might have four or five copies of each of these books that I'm quite a fan of. And I've over the years found loads of great authors and built up a really powerful library. Sometimes I'll revisit some books that I haven't looked at for a number of years and go, oh, actually, maybe that one isn't that great. And I might get rid of that or might change it because my own perspectives have changed and my eyes are more open. But I guess I'm trying to say that, yes, that takes time. And when you don't have a textbook that's organised for you, it does take time to build up your resources. But there's an amazing community of teachers of comprehensible input out there. Great Facebook groups, great teachers on social media and Twitter. And you can find them and they share resources with each other. And you can buy some of the books that have stories in them. Or So you do have to go and look for resources. You do have to build them up over time. There are some books written out there by various different people. I know Adriana Ramirez has a curriculum about for following for comprehensible inputs. I have to be really honest and say I've not really looked at it in much detail nor have I looked at any other kind of CI curricula because I've kind of built my own over time so I don't think it I can't really comment on those but have a look at them get a book see if you can get one for your department and go through it and see what you think and just build it from there. Now the fourth thing I think is our love for all things grammar. As I said in the first point the way we were taught we as language teachers we love grammar And you will have the odd student who is really into it. And you can say to them if they ask in all those questions and you want to keep providing your inputs, look, come to me at lunch and let's geek out about this grammar. And I will I will talk to you about the passive voice and the subordinate clause and the and the relative clause over and over again. (laughs) They'll love it and you love it and it'll be fantastic. But for most people, that's not the case. So we have to kind of let that go and make sure that we just because we love grammar doesn't mean that our 14 or 15 year olds in front of us, if there's 25, 30 of them are going to be really enthusiastic about learning about grammar and and the conditional and the imperfect and the subjunctive. Number five, I think, and number six go together. And that is our ability to be comprehensible and our own level of the language. I think they are big obstacles and they really are a major cause of resistance towards teaching with this more comprehensible input focus because essentially we're relying a lot on our own language level and our ability to provide comprehensible input. So really, if you want to be someone who can provide interesting, compelling, comprehensible inputs, a really important thing is to keep building your own language proficiency. Now, I'm talking to non-native speakers of the language people like me, uh, others who have grown up in an Anglophone context, maybe, and you're teaching a different language. You need to keep that language level up and high at a good high level. Go and immerse yourself in the culture as much as you can. Watch movies, read books, speak to people in the language and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid thinking, oh, I'm a teacher and my level isn't that good. That's okay. It's okay to be vulnerable and show that you're still learning. That's fine. Before I took my first job here in Switzerland, like I was a bit worried about this. So I went to Spain and I did a course for a couple of weeks in a university in the north of Spain. And I just lived in the culture again for for a little bit more time. I travelled in South America. That might not be an option to you if you've got a young family or whatever. So 
Do what you can. Watch a movie in the language on Netflix or read the news in the language, whatever you can do. Immerse yourself in those things as much as you can, because by keeping your level high, you're raising your own confidence to give lots of comprehensible input. And then to those who are native speakers, you have the challenge of making sure that you are keeping it comprehensible. I've mentioned this before. When I teach English, I know that I feel I'm being really comprehensible but oftentimes words that I consider quite simple, like the word resources, I consider that a fairly normal word, resources. I use it all the time. You hear it around school all the time. Doesn't mean that my English learners understand that word and that one word can completely throw them off and they don't know what I'm on about. So as a native speaker, you really have to constantly read the room and keep checking for understanding and asking them to repeat and and say things in their own language and trans language. That's so important because as native speakers, I know when I teach English, I speak way quicker than when I'm teaching Spanish. And that's because I learned Spanish and I know the stuff that was difficult for me. So there we go. There's my kind of six obstacles or resistance to teaching with CI. And each of those, just pick one of them to unpack a little bit. Maybe it's the textbook that you're going to leave to the side and have a goal of not using it so much. You're going to dip in but not use it every page like you used to. Or maybe you're going to work more on your own level. Or maybe you're going to really think about those deeply held beliefs about how you were taught languages and why that might not work for everybody. If you're teaching in a, in a grammar translation method and you're in a department where typically, you know, within the first week you're looking at verb tables and we're, 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 we're conjugating verbs and we're right, filling the gap exercises in the present tense and that is really the focus is on the accuracy. Maybe you're thinking, well, why, why bother? Why should I bother changing? I do think just ask yourself the question, how many students leave your school or your environment as fluent, proficient, confident speakers who walk out the door going, I speak French? I speak Italian and they can say those words, not oh, I speak a little bit of Italian. I did it in school. I, I understand a bit that they can really say it. No, I, I speak Italian like, and I'm willing to give it a go and I'm going to. That's really the goal for me and about the culture and that they stay in your program year after year after year. If you're already doing that, if you've loads of retention, people aren't dropping the subject, they're super into it. They all take it on to, to the highest level of study. They're leaving really proficient speakers. Well, keep doing what you're doing. You are clearly providing lots of comprehensible inputs, maybe without even knowing it. And that's not to say that you throw out every grammar exercise. I, I've said this over and over again. That is not the way I'm not saying that or advocating for that. You need to do things that work with your style and maybe focusing a little bit less on the grammar accuracy and a little bit more on the communication and loads of interesting inputs, allowing them to build the system. That's, I think, the really important part. And again, you know, if you're thinking, why bother? I would just look at the wider perspective. Look at the amount of students in the wider perspective, outside your context, in your country, maybe, who are dropping the subject, who are not going on to study it more than a year or two, they're dropping it as quickly as they can. That happens over and over again. And the research shows us this over and over again. What we are doing right now is not working. We're not reaching many kids, we're reaching very few. And remember that learning and acquiring more languages not only opens our minds and opens our cognitive functions, it opens our arms to others, to people who sound different, who look different, who act differently to us. And that helps us reduce discrimination and bias in the world. So you are doing an important job. And by helping to have more bums on seats next year, they decide one more year I'm going to take Spanish, one more year I'm going to take French because it was really fun. It was really interesting and I, I feel confident using it. Well, then we are, we're doing great, a great job. Then if they drop it a couple of years later to change for physics because they really want to study physics, well, OK then. But you kept them in your programme for a few years. 
And I really think that will come from focusing less on the accuracy, particularly in those first couple of years, and much more on the interesting, compelling inputs. So I hope that was useful thinking about those obstacles and resistance. Next week, as I say, I will talk a lot more about some of the bigger, wider debates in the language teaching community, in the CI community. Is teaching with CI inherently more inclusive, for example? It's a big question we keep hearing. Is teaching with CI, does that mean that we have to buy certain materials and certain books? Is teaching with CI always against other teachers and saying we're better than everybody else? And I hope by listening to this podcast, you can hear the answer to a lot of those questions is no. But these are some of the things I hear thrown around on social media. And hopefully I'll have a go at addressing some of these or at least just giving my take on things. Remember, this Motivated Classroom podcast is just my take on things and do with that as you wish. So speaking of improving our practice and, you know, immersing ourselves and trying to get better at it. And also speaking of my take on things, I have a very special live stream video podcast coming up very soon with the wonderful Jason Fritz and Alina Filipescu. And we're going to be talking all about target language, staying in the target language and while making sure we keep it compelling and comprehensible. And that is part of the CI Reboot online conference. So if you're trying to improve your practice and you want to learn a little bit more new new techniques about becoming more of a CI approaches teacher. Well, go ahead and look up the CI Reboot Conference and then you will have access to that live stream video podcast. And it's going to be a live Q&A session where I'll be taking questions from people as they're watching it and putting them to Alina and Jason. Very exciting. And there's some wonderful presenters, people who've been on this podcast, actually, Adriana Ramirez, Ben Tinsley, Stephen Crashin, uh, Margarita Perez-Garcia. Those two, their episodes are coming up, but they will all be presenting at this CI Reboot conference. So if you're interested in doing that, sign up. And when you do, in the order notes, just put in the words, the Motivated Classroom or Liam Printer. And that will mean that the CI Reboot Conference will actually donate a couple of coffees to me and the Motivated Classroom to keep it running and keep it going. So that would be hugely appreciated. Um, so if you want to sign up, please make sure you do that. These online conferences are absolutely fantastic and there's loads of brilliant stuff there. And I just love that you have the recordings to look up later. And I did that last year with this. There's no way I could attend all of these sessions live. Just no way. But I had all the recordings and bit by bit I could dip into them throughout the year and I could look at that and then look at another one and I learned so much from it and I just think it's a great way to interact with other colleagues. Now it's a really good thing to try and do even if it's only for two or three days over your whole summer or you know what if you just want to spend time with your family and recharge that's also totally cool but if you want to try and learn more and become more of a, a teacher focused on CI then I do recommend it. Look it up CI Reboot I'll put it in the program notes and please do mention the Motivated Classroom or Liam Printer so that um, the organisers will donate something small to the running of the podcast which would be hugely appreciated. All right, thank you so much, Gurmila Mahagav. Don't forget your Irish word for the day was Dune on Duras. Close the door. Gurmila Mahagav, August Slonawalia. The Motivated Classroom podcast is an original production by Liam Printer. I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter, and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer, The Motivated Classroom. Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website, liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow The Motivated Classroom podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.